Thank you for listening to the Sunset Church of Christ podcast. You're listening to a sermon that was preached on October 27, 2019. The title of this sermon was An Approved Church Pursues Purity. Thank you again for listening, and we now tune in to that lesson. Last couple of months, we've been talking about an idea that uh, is of great importance uh, to all of us, and, and hopefully it's been things that have given you some thought about what it is that we purpose together as the family of God, as a congregation, as a group of Christians in a local area that have said, we're going to help one another get to heaven. That's our goal, we're the family of God. And we sang some fantastic songs this morning that reminded us of being the family of God and gave us that uh, hope and that joy that we should uh, faithfully pursue the things of God and that we should, above all things, be approved by God. That's the word we've been using, right? Approved. We said that that describes what it is we find in the New Testament in places, and Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 were uh, two of our big places that we started in, where we saw Jesus examining churches and, and how we saw that Jesus approved of some, but then disapproved of others. And we said that it's important that we're pursuing the things that causes a church to be approved. And we talked about six things, six purposes that a church has that set it apart and make it something that pursues approval. And this morning we're at the final of those six things. We're going to be careful not to say the most important of those things, because what we want to say is they're all important. Uh, But at the same time, it is one of the things that is spoken of quite often in the New Testament. And we're going to use the word purity. Purity is a description of the idea of the things that we're talking about. In fact, when we go back to two of the churches of the seven churches of Asia, we see that the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira, that they both have a problem with the concept of what we're talking about this morning, the concept of purity. At Pergamum, Jesus examined that church and he said, I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now then to Thyatira, he says, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. I want you to focus in on two ideas here. That first of all, he was looking at the church of Pergamum and he says, you're unapproved because of what's uh, being taught. And second of all, he says to the church of Thyatira, you're unapproved because of who is, and we want to be careful here that Jesus almost certainly must be distinguishing who is a member of your church. Maybe another way to describe this is that he is saying to Pergamum, you tolerate false doctrine. He's saying to Thyatira that he's saying, you tolerate false brethren. And these two ideas, I'm going to suggest to you, really aren't so different. And we really get a sense of that if we go to another church of the New Testament, to the church in Corinth. And we find in the church in Corinth that the Apostle Paul addresses a letter to them, 1 Corinthians, and then later 2 Corinthians. And in those letters, he begins to talk about things that, that cause them to be, well, we'll use the same term, to cause them to be unapproved. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul launches into the conversation with this church. He says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. 
that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. He goes on to say that I've been informed concerning you by the, uh, he, he tells us it's by the people in Chloe's uh, house, that there are quarrels among you, there are divisions, that, uh, that there are different concepts of doctrine being accepted. And he says, you think that's okay. And it's not okay. And he goes on to say that the only thing that you need to work on here, the thing that will fix this, is that you need to have a unity of doctrine. You need to be of the same mind and how you understand the will of God. A little further on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage we mentioned in our class time this morning, the Apostle Paul talking again to the Corinthians about their toleration of somebody who is living in sin there. He says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here again, he makes this very explicit direction that there's somebody there, a member of the church, who's living in sin, and you've accepted that, and he says, that can't be the case. He says, you can't allow that. He goes on to say, a little bit of leaven will leaven the whole lump. It'll affect all of you if you allow this to continue. The solution, he says, church action. Sometimes we use the word church discipline. That the church has to act. Paul would go on to talk to the Corinthians about this idea, and he uses an image that I've always thought really grabs some of the idea of this. He begins to describe them as though they're a bride, and it's his job to bring her to the groom. Now imagine that, that it's the case that you've got a, a royal bride of some kind. I know we don't have royalty, but imagine you, you've been put in charge of getting some bride to, to somewhere, and you know, it's raining outside, and it's muddy, and, and you say, well, you know, are we going to get you there or not? You know that that garment she's wearing is very susceptible to even the slightest of stains, so what are you going to do? You might think, well, I'm going to get the car real close to where I can get her in, I'll have that umbrella over her, I'll, I'll make sure that, that, that no mud drops on her, that she doesn't fall... She doesn't bruise herself. She doesn't injure herself. Because your job is to bring her to the groom, to bring her to the wedding without any kind of uh, a spot or blemish. Paul would tell the Corinthians, the reason that I'm, I'm uh, so upset that you're not teaching the right doctrines, that, that you have more than one idea of what's right and wrong, you have these divisions. He says, the reason I'm so upset that you're allowing somebody to live in sin and, and to be among you and be a member is he says, I, I'm jealous. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. It's again that concept of the man who says, I, I want to make sure that you get there okay. I betrothed you to one husband so that uh, to Christ I might present you as a, as a pure virgin. There's that word purity that seems to to connect Paul's concerns about what they're teaching, what they believe, their doctrine, and what they're doing as members, how they're behaving. And, and he draws all this together by saying, here's what I want. I want you, I want you to get to the wedding without a blemish, without a spot. Indeed, when talking about the universal church to the Ephesians in chapter 5, Paul used that same language. Uh, he would say to that church, Ephesians 5, verses 25, 26, 27, he would say that Christ loved the church. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
and gave himself for her. It's a fantastic lesson of itself just about about how marriage and the love of marriage ought to be. Uh, That he might, listen to this though, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing uh, of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Here comes this language again. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And there's that language again that we would say speaks to the idea of the purity of a local church. A local church is supposed to pursue the purpose of purity. And that purity comes in two forms we've seen. We've seen it comes in the form of the doctrine of Christ. And from other lessons we've studied, we've seen that the doctrine of Christ is the New Testament. And it comes from the purity of membership. Now, we might think to ourselves, well, wait a second, you know, membership, aren't, isn't that the problem a lot of times? I mean, we're, none of us are perfect, uh, but the point is, do we accept that? Or are we always striving for more? Let me kind of take a couple of your minutes and talk about these two ideas, two very important ideas, uh, kind of to fill in uh, some of the thoughts or questions you might have about these ideas. And let us speak first to the idea of the purpose of purity as it comes to doctrinal, doctrinal purity. Your Bible sometimes might use the word doctrine. Other translations might use the word teaching. Understand doctrine and teaching uh, synonymous in the New Testament. And what the Word of God tells us, what Paul told the Corinthians, is he says, number one, what I want you to know is don't go beyond what's written. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, these things I've applied figuratively to myself and to Apollos for your sake so that you may learn not to exceed what is written. Don't go beyond the Word of God. In fact, at the very end of Revelation, after that, the, the, that letter that the seven churches got, if you remember, the very last words or one of the last statements made in that book is not to add to the things of this book. We're supposed to understand that we're not drawing doctrine from anywhere other than the Scriptures. We're not taking it from men. We're not following the teachings of men. We're not looking at things that people have to say and saying, hey, this is a great philosophy. Let's, let's apply it to what we think. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. You, you know it by memory, probably. That all the Scriptures God breathed is inspired by God. The profitability of Scripture for doctrine, reproof, correction, all those things. There's, there's doctrine again. It speaks about the thoroughness and the completeness of purpose that is provided by the Scripture. Paul would tell Timothy, he says, that you know, the things I write is so that the church knows how to conduct itself. Purpose of the church. Purpose of the church. Number one, we want to be doctrinally right. That means we don't go beyond what's written. But at the same time, on the other side of that, number two, it means we don't we don't shortchange what's written either. The second half of that statement in Revelation, uh, where it speaks uh, not to add to the words of the book, it also said not to take away the words of the book. When Paul is talking to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, he said in verse 27, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Everything 
has to be taught. You know, a lot of times churches might say, well, we'll teach the things of the Word of God, but sometimes something might be controversial, it may not be something people want to hear, it may be something that that causes consternation among men, and we say, well, let's just kind of put that one off. Uh, I've heard of people say, let's just agree not to talk about those things so that we we might have some kind of peace among us. Yet the Word of God expects that the purpose of the church in part is that we will teach uh, not beyond what's written, but also we won't shortchange what is written either. Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. The, the totality of the word of God. That's what we're supposed to be examining. Everything that God has said. Doctrinal purity says we don't go too far, but we also don't come up short. That, that it's the word of God, the entire word of God, and only the word of God, that is where we go for our understanding of the things of God. But another point comes along to this that the Word of God tells us, and that is to say that somebody comes to us, or somebody's among us, and they're not doing what's right. They're not teaching what's right. I urge you, brethren, Paul told the Romans in Romans 16 and verse 17, he says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions, offensive, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. Doctrinal purity says don't accept those that bring about divisive doctrines. The doctrines or, or teachers that create division among us. Paul, again, warning Timothy about these things in 1 Timothy 6 and verses 3, 4, and 5. He says anyone teaches, there's that idea of doctrine again, anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. He goes on to describe who this person is in verse 4. He said he is proud, knowing nothing, obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. He says you're not to accept that. That's not tolerable among you. A church that pursues a doctrinal purity says it's not tolerable that we allow all sorts of things to be said that cause division and strife. Uh, along that same idea that we don't accept those who come to us without the truth. We've often said the entire book of Second John is just about this idea that if a teacher comes to us, and, and again, not just a person that's visiting, but one who says, hey, I've come to teach you, and this person comes uh, who, who doesn't believe, bring the doctrine of Christ Verse 10, anyone who comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. He who greets shares his evil deeds. That's a profound, important idea that we're not to accept those who, who come and say, hey, I'm here to teach, but, but I don't teach or follow or believe the entirety of the doctrine of Christ. He says you're not to receive them in that way. Peter would talk about those in 2 Peter chapter 1. That's one of the few times the term false teachers is actually used in the Bible. That he would talk about those who twist uh, the truth to their own destruction. He described them at length throughout the whole chapter of 2 Peter chapter 2. And that he would say, here are people you've got to watch out for. He says, because what they're doing is they're taking the word of God, they're breaking it and they're feeding it to you, they're poisoning it and they're feeding it to you and it's destroying you. Purpose of purity. Number one, doctrinal purity. 
The church is charged with the purpose of only pursuing the doctrine that is in the Word of God and not accepting anything that comes along that isn't. Now, the other half of this coin, what we might call congregational purity. Maybe I could say membership purity. Membership purity, the idea of what is expected from the members of the local body. Uh, first and foremost, you might be surprised to say that the Bible is explicit to say the very first thing that is uh, about the idea of, of membership purity is the idea of what's being taught. Kind of goes back to doctrine again. But when Paul was telling Timothy about the, the warnings of, of the, the problems that come up with, with bad doctrine, and he says, uh, preach the word... Uh, Reference this a second ago. Preach the word, be ready, in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. He says, For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heave up for themselves teachers. He says, Here's the problem. He says, The problem is a lot of times members aren't aren't always focused on what they ought to be. And he says, The number one thing that a church is going to do, and Timothy, as, as, as the evangelist of the church, he says, is you've got, to, you've got to present the truth so that those who are approved will be known. So that those who love the truth can be seen, can be manifested among you. The very first principle of discipline of the church is knowledge. You have to know what's expected, what, what it is that being a part of the church that Jesus built is all about. This is why uh, we mentioned this passage in class this morning. Peter would say, hey, you know, you, you begin, before you get to self-control, he says, you have to have knowledge. You begin with faith. You add to that virtue. You add to that knowledge. You add to that self-control. Fundamentally, the first step of the purity of the local church and its members is that we have to have an understanding of what's expected of us. And so one of the purposes of the church, again, going back to a lot of the other purposes we've talked about, like edification, like evangelism, is that we're supposed to be saying, hey, this is what it is to be a disciple of Christ. This is what's expected of you. This is how you conduct your life. And there's no such thing as, as a purity of the membership if there's no knowledge of what it is that we are expected to be all about. What's next? Well, the next thing actually might also surprise you, not... When we talk about the idea of the discipline of the church, the second thing is the church has to have some wisdom in how we exercise that discipline. You know, Jude would, uh, talking about how to, you know, distinguish between the false teacher and the, and the person who's simply been deceived or who's simply ignorant, he would say on some you have compassion. Jude verse 22, 23 says, he says, on some you have compassion, making a distinction. You have to kind of figure it out. He says, you have to know that if somebody's just ignorant, they don't know the truth. He says, you're going to patiently teach them. But he says, on others, you're going to save them with fear. You're going to pull them out of the fire, painting even the garment defiled by flesh. He says, you're going to, with some say, you know what? You didn't understand. We're going to work with this with others. He say, you know, if you keep going this path, you can't be a part of us anymore. Using wise judgment to discern when somebody is not living the life of Christ. Why aren't they living the life of Christ? Is it rebellion? Is it their refusal to do it? Or is it ignorance? They just don't know any better. And the Word of God is saying that we have to figure out if they're just not understanding. We have to patiently teach them. But then also the Word of God would then say, but if they do know. If they're 
if their behavior, if the behavior of members in not walking according to the things the Word of God says, if it's caused because they simply, uh, they simply are willfully rebellion, the Word of God says, you've got to do something about that. A church that thinks purity is important, and hopefully we all know that we're supposed to, says, you know, somebody doesn't want to walk according to the things of the Word of God. We've got to do something about that. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Admonish the unruly. Such a generic term. First Thessalonians 5, verse 14 uses there. Uh, it just is the idea of saying you're supposed to get them back on track. You're supposed to give them a message that says what you're doing isn't the best. What you're doing may be sinful. What you're doing Absolutely is sinful. Whatever the message may be, it's to say that it, that it's just not something we can accept. Now in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, I read a second ago, Paul also said you have to be patient. And patience is the biggest part of this. You, you might consider that again with the charge to the evangelist in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 25 where he says, In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps grants them repentance that they may know the truth. That patience he refers to repeatedly in the whole of that chapter, 2 Timothy 2, uh, of part of that teaching that in humility correcting those in opposition, that sense of coming and confronting error. And then the Word of God would say that those that are unrepentant, those that, that their ignorance is, is been addressed, and it's simply the fact that they're in rebellion. He says, you can't accept that. And here lies one of the great problems that so many churches struggle with is the idea to say, we may know what the right doctrine is, but we know that there are among us some that don't walk according to that, and we don't do anything about it. And God says, that's unacceptable. If anyone does not obey the words of, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14, of the words of this epistle, note that person. Don't keep company with that person, that he may be ashamed. Sometimes we use the term the withdrawal of the body. That's actually uh, the biblical term, not keep company with somebody, having no partnership with somebody. We command you, brethren, Paul said to them. Uh, he restated this uh, uh, in chapter 3 and verse 14, but in verse 6, he was explicit. He says, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. This is not something that the church has a choice in. If we say, well, let's not do anything about it. Somebody's living their life in a way that they're, they're living in drunkenness. They're living in idolatry. They're living in covetousness. They're living in, 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 in sexual immorality. And we say, it's okay. Or we don't want to do anything about it. He says, you're not pursuing purity. You've missed the purpose of the church. We command you, brethren, you've got to do something about that. You know, it's an incredible thing. Uh, uh, we've all seen churches where uh, people behave in terrible ways and, and the church doesn't seem to want to do anything about it. And we think to ourselves, does it not matter? You know, imagine it was the case where you went to a nice restaurant and you saw a family sitting over and their, uh, their kids were dancing on the table and throwing things and making noise. And you'd say, well, you know, what kind, what kind of parents are these that they, they don't have any control of their kids and they behave this way? And what is your respect for those parents? You, you have none, right? Because they don't, they don't seek 
They don't seek to restrain those who are misbehaving. And Paul says, you know, if if your brethren aren't doing what's right, you've got to do something about that. This is a part of the purpose of the church. Somebody doesn't want to walk aright, you've got to do something because they're going to be lost. He says, you've got to to do something because they're going to be lost. And if you have any affection for them, you're going to do everything you can to save them. And, And utterly, that is the point. But pursuing these ideas is that these are the things that are going to get us to heaven. And if the purpose of the church is to help each other get to heaven, then one of the obstacles to getting to heaven, sin, is something that you have to address for me, I have to address for you. It has to be important. I think too often the problem is people are quick to sacrifice purity for the things that they want, you know, in our lives personally. Uh, we could talk a lot about personal purity, the idea of, of personally presenting myself approved of God, personally seeking out the things uh, in my life and avoiding the sins that uh, that make me impure before God. And why is it that we oftentimes sacrifice purity in our lives, in our speech, in our words? Uh, well, all sorts of worldly things come up. It seems like purity is one of the first things that is lost in our lives. But it's also something that goes quickly in a church too. But here's what's remarkable is oftentimes a church will sacrifice purity for the sake of what it thinks are other purposes of God. And as crazy as that sounds, some would sacrifice purity for worship. In other words, they say, well, let's have a worship that's exciting and glamorous and and really just makes us feel really good. And they, they go beyond what's written. They add to the things of God. We can, we can point around to uh, a lot of the, the denominations in the world today and say, look, you know, here's this sacrifice of purity because you, you're pursuing something in worship. Ironically, in the end, they have neither purity nor worship. But you see how purity is the thing that they're laying on the altar to bring about a worship that they desire. Some would uh, uh, sacrifice purity for the work of getting people into the church. You know, if we just loosen our standards, if we just kind of open the, open things, we can have more members, we can get bigger, and that's what they're thinking of when they think of evangelism. And ironically, again, by sacrificing purity for evangelism, they, they lose them both. Some would give up purity for, for edification, for making the saints feel good, or, or things like that. And again, there's that idea of not wanting to discipline anybody for the sake of of just making everybody happy. They might sacrifice purity for organization to create works within the church that weren't there. And you have this sense of why purity is something that so easily is cast aside and yet has such great value. It has such tremendous value to us because purity, purity is our appeal to God. Purity is what God looks at and says, that's what I like. That's what brings me joy. Like the, uh, like the beautiful bride that walks in on the wedding day and everybody says, wow, isn't she glamorous? That she's the center of the wedding. Her beauty, her glamour is the thing that everybody's looking at. That, that's the appeal that everybody has. And our purity is our appeal to God. We need to think about that for a second. Our, pure, our, our appeal to God isn't that there were, you know, oh, if we just bring in loads of people by, by doing the work of evangelism, or, you know, we're just the most knowledgeable people there are in the Bible by the work of edification. Uh, our worship is so exciting. All these things, you know, they're important things, but understand that purity, that's what makes us something 
that pleases God. That's what lines up all the rest of our purposes. To be satisfying to God. If we don't have purity, then the rest of our purposes lose their value. They're meaningless. Indeed, if we go back to what we read just a moment ago, where Paul was saying in Ephesians 5, 26, 27, talking about the bride of Christ, and he said that he would present to her, to himself, a glorious church. Do you see the word glorious there? Our purity is the glory that God finds in us. Our purity is the thing that gives us the appeal that we want to have to God. So is purity important? Hopefully you now say, I guess it's of the greatest of importance. And I guess as we pursue purposes, as I said a moment ago, we don't shun uh, one for another, but at the same time we might understand that purity might be the one that lines up all the other purposes to be pleasing to God. Let's take a second and let's go to our Father in a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Holy Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for the blessings you give us each and every day. On this day, Father, in particular, though, the day that you have given us, the day that you have made, that we might gather together to worship you. We pray, Father, that all that we have done is pleasing in your sight. Father, as we have considered this morning our, in our time the importance of purity, we pray, Father, that you might find us that which we desire to be, a church that pursues purity, a purity of doctrine, that, Lord, we teach your word and only your word and all of your word. And that, Father, we don't accept those uh, that wouldn't. And that, Father, we accept within ourselves as members that important pursuit of purity. That, Father, whenever it's uh, always hateful but sometimes necessary that we must discipline ourselves, we must admonish one another, we must rebuke one another, that we do so with the understanding that this is vital to our purity. We pray, Father, that you'll help us. Help us because sometimes pursuing purity is such a difficult thing. Sometimes it's very hard, Father. We pray that you might lift us up and encourage us, that you might help us to see the rewards of pursuing purity, that you might give us the benefits of pursuing purity, that we might have your blessings as we seek after you. Father, when we, both individually as a congregation, have stumbled, have not pursue the things that we need to, we ask you to please forgive us. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I mentioned the idea that purity we pursue as a congregation is very similar to the purity we pursue personally. And I'd ask you that question this morning about the purity you pursue Personal. You know, the Hebrew writer said something really interesting in Hebrews 10, and it was all about your personal purity. And he says, Therefore, brethren, having a boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God. You know what's interesting? He starts to talk about this idea of being consecrated, of being holy, which is to be pure before God. He says, you know, if you're spotless before God, he says, you can go before God. In this sense, we might say before God in prayer, before God in worship, all the different ways that a priest might uh, be able to serve God. And the Hebrew writer is describing us as priests of God who have been purified. And he describes this purifying way, this way that is given by Christ. 
that because Jesus died on the cross, he created a new way to God, a new and living way uh, into the temple of God, into the holiest of places before God. And that he says Jesus serves as the high priest to God and offers us a constant intercession. He says if that's happened... Hebrew writer goes on in verse 22 of chapter 10 to say, well, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now, here comes the purity language. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised his faith. I want to point out two things to you really quick. Give them to you and let you do with them what you need to do. The first is that statement where he says that we have our hearts sprinkled of an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. And second of all, that we're holding fast to our confession. What I think is so interesting here is that he's describing what it is to be a Christian. To have our hearts sprinkled of, of the evil conscience. You know, Peter would describe being baptized. First Peter chapter 3, verse 21, not, is the response of the good conscience towards God. And I can't help but feel like these passages are using that language together, uh, meant to be contrasted with each other, because then the Hebrew writer says, and your body's washed with water. What can that mean except the response of the good heart towards God in hearing what God has said that we must do to be saved? The Word of God says we have to hear and believe. And we make a confession that Jesus is Lord. And the writer would go on to say that confession and holding on to that confession becomes your Christian life. If you believe Jesus is Lord, then you live a life that reflects that confession. You hold on to it. Every time we come together, we offer the opportunity for somebody who, first of all, is not in Christ to pursue the purity of Christ. That purity is found in part uh, by those who, uh, having heard, believe, confess, repent, and they're baptized, their bodies washed, their conscience cleaned of evil things, purified before God. They're now the priests of God. But then he says, you hold to that confession by the deeds of your life, by living faithfully towards God. If you've not yet obeyed that gospel, that message of Jesus Christ, of what it is to be purified before God, we'd like to encourage you. We'd like to talk to you about that, what you need to do to be right with God. And secondly, if you have, but you've struggled to hold on to your confession, you've struggled to remain faithful, you're just struggling with the things of life, we'd like to encourage you, we'd like to pray for you. So if we've said anything that provokes a need, you can sure visit us after service, but maybe you need to do something right now. And if so, why don't you come up here and visit with me? while we stand and while we sing.